This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's 2023, a new year and a chance for you lot to try something new. And if getting closer to nature and connecting with the natural world is on your list, then there's something I think you'll need. A pair of binoculars are essential for any nature nerd's day out to make sure you don't miss anything. And Leica's range of kit is, insert chef's kiss right here. Not only are they durable, lightweight, with a great range of optics, and come with a potential finance plan, but they are dead easy to use. To read more about what Leica have to offer for sport optics, visit their website, which is linked in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast that is all about nature, wildlife and conservation. I am your host Ryan Dalton, welcome to the show. Nerds, how are you doing? Last week, which was quite aggressive, um, last week when I did the intros to this wonderful show, we'd all like to write our own reviews, um, I said I'd had a day in the rain, it was wet all day, I didn't really see much, just had to crack on with work today. Oh, the polar opposite. Blue skies, I saw a kestrel, I saw, I mean, that was, oh, I heard loads of woodpeckers, which was a, which was nice, nice. I'm trying so hard not to be a birder, but it's challenging this time of year because there's, come on spring, I need my insects back. I need some insects, come on. Anyway, welcome to another episode. I hope you're all doing well. I hope the new year's kicked off to a nice start and we're all into the flow of everything. Um, And I hope you're all smiling and happy. Let's go on to today's show, shall we? Um, I was absolutely buzzing to do this episode uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I am a huge fan of the guests that we had on the show. Two, it's a topic that many of you, whenever I've asked for some new ideas of what we should be talking about, it's it's something that has come up a lot and a lot and a lot. And recently on Instagram, I think at least 10 to 15 of you suggested this topic and I got DMs about it as well. So it was nice to be able to talk about it finally. My guest this week is climate activist and author now of upcoming book called It's Not Just You, Tori Choi. Tori is, I've followed her on Instagram for a long time. I'm a huge fan of her activism work. Um, and, and just the way that Tori talks about systems and how to challenge them and how to be with your community and also still talks about nice wildlife nature nurturey kind of stuff i just sorry that was a really bad way to explain it tori i do apologize but what i'm trying to say is i'm a big fan of her work so it's absolute pleasure to have tori on the show to be able to give her a chance to talk more about it the one thing i really do adore about tori's climate activism work is it really dives in to our mental health, about how we deal with our mental health and eco-anxiety and everything that goes with that in the global north when it comes to the climate crisis as well. And Tori touched on some beautiful points with this about what eco-anxiety means and how it's not necessarily a threat globally and why that is as well. Um, it was really interesting and really really nice to ha- have that conversation with Tori. And there are some tips in there. So if any of you listening do suffer from eco-anxiety, um, first of all, we're all here for you. And second of all, there are a few tips in here from Tori and um, what helps her. And I share a bit about what helps me as well. Obviously, this is an episode about the climate crisis, about climate activism. So if you do suffer from eco-anxiety... 
Deep breath. Don't have to listen to it in one go. Take a break if you need to. Come back to it. We do try to keep it light as we always do on Into the Wild. Um, and there is a nice section where we just talk about food for a bit. So <laughs> look forward to that. Um, but this episode is simply titled Eco Anxiety with Tori Choi. Right. Tori, welcome to Into the Wild. <laughs> it's lovely to Thank have you, you here. How are Thank you? you. I am doing very well, um, albeit I have a bit of a dry cough. I mentioned earlier that yeah. over the holidays, I caught COVID from somebody uh, who actually didn't disclose that they had COVID. So this was an interesting uh Oh, you know affairs. where it came from? I know exactly where it came from. Oh, yeah. So there's a, <laughs> and I have made it three years without having COVID. So for me, I was like, what? You know? Oh, so, no, mate. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. I'm still, as far as I'm aware... I'm still not at it. Wow. So I feel That's your pain. Yeah. <laughs> that was if I knew the person. Right? I, had, I took a lot of pride in the fact that I <laughs> hadn't had COVID. And I know that there are things you can't control for, but I've, I've always been yeah, very cautious and very like hygienic insofar as, you know, <laughs> washing hands and everything. And yeah. so as soon as I got COVID, I was like, oh my God, no. But so I've got a bit of Were a dry you okay? cough. It was not good not gonna lie i really really struggled with it um more than other people who got covid um do you reckon that's that's what i fear because i've not Mm. had it i'm I'm worried that if i do get it my body's gonna just panic and go into shutdown mode something that for me was a pretty indicative thing of how badly it it affected me was how i responded to getting the vaccinations so I Oh, okay. Yeah. So when I got my COVID vaccinations and then the booster, I was very sick afterwards. Um right. so I feel like maybe it's just my body and yeah. COVID just not being a very good mix. So just just doesn't want it. Oh, that's yeah. I I feel for you. I feel for you because obviously it's a horrible thing, but I feel for you from the I haven't had it before. Yeah. <laughs> sense so as well. If right. I if I happen to cough in the middle of this, you know. It's it's a hangover. Yeah, it's it's just <laughs> the, like post-COVID COVID. cough. Not infectious, <laughs> but just yeah. <laughs> well, luckily we're on Zoom, so unless this virus has massively mutated and um, a- <laughs> is able to transfer on the computer, we're fine. Yeah, and I'm fine. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shall we start with the obvious one, Tori? Do you want to tell everyone who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. I am Tori, Tori Choi, and I live in Bristol. I'm from Hong Kong, and I am a climate justice activist, writer, and organiser, and kind of do a lot of different things that probably really go hand in hand with uh, the theme of the podcast. I'm a massive mycophile. I love to forage. Um, yeah, and- what's your favourite foraging thing? Mushrooms. <laughs> I love to forage oh, yeah. mushrooms. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so, you know... Very fitting for the nature of this podcast. (laughs) And I used to do a lot more wildlife storytelling and communication. Mm. Um, And then I moved kind of into the realm of climate advocacy, which they're not not complementary, but that Mm. is my main focus now. Nice. That's so cool. So... You so you're foraging for shrooms on the rakes, <laughs> sorry, fungi. Sorry, <laughs> let's, let's, keep let's it clearly broad. define yeah. what we mean. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean you know it's not the best time of the year for foraging certain types yep. of edible fungi, but you know nevertheless, still very interested in IDing and just kind of seeing what's out there. Went out for a walk really the cool. other day. I must admit, 
around the autumn months is the best yeah, time Yeah, that's me. the peak, isn't it? That's yeah. the peak. That's like the Glastonbury for fungi. No, yeah. It's just like yeah. when everything's going on. 100%. Um, so, yeah, like you said, many hats in the nature world mm. that you wear or swap between. But yeah. what's so what's been your biggest nature highlight in the last seven days? In the last seven days? You know, I'll be honest, the rain has yeah. meant that I haven't gotten out as much. <laughs> but I did recently go for a walk with some pals, which was very mm. nice. I mean, it's not it was not the most momentous walk I've ever done in my life, but... For the first time in a very long time, I managed to just embrace the fact that it was hailing sideways and rain was just getting in my face. I was completely sodden. And then I went for a really delightful roast afterwards. So for me, that's been a really delightful experience. If every walk was a guaranteed end with a roast dinner, Mm. everyone would walk every day. (laughs) The thing that made it even more special was the fact that I... I'm not saying one has to walk in horrific conditions in order to earn a roast, but I did feel like I'd earned it. I was like, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm I know nervous. what you mean. You, you were, yeah, totally, yeah. totally yeah. right. I, I, do you know what? Since summer last year, mm. the rain, I really don't mind now, mm. which is again fitting with the topic of the show. Right. Because that was so disgustingly horrible, yeah. especially for London or people that lived in cities or, you know, heavy concrete areas. 100%. Then I was just like, absolutely, I don't know what my video is doing. Sorry, listeners, but I'm, <laughs> I'm multitasking okay. like a, a, a bus right now. My video keeps pausing. I'm like, if it happens again, I'll keep it off. Um, You're good. But yeah, I, I, since, since summer, I'm just like, if it's raining all day, I'm like, oh, I don't care. Like yeah. bring on the normal level of right. rain. <laughs> right, I feel you on that. And I think the summer was just like really, really horrific for so many different yeah. reasons. And seeing it rain prolifically has been quite reassuring yeah. um, that, you know, that rain isn't completely gone from this earth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that being said, there's also a lot of downsides to excess rain, as we're kind of seeing oh, well, in California. We, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, it's just like, yeah, it's just, I tell you what, let's save all the weather chat mm. for the theme of this show. Because mm. like, do you know what, Tori, whenever we do an episode, we've done a couple before about climate and about, you know, whether it's about the climate crisis, biodiversity crisis. Mm. As you know from your career, it can get heavy and it Truly. can get a bit... Okay, so halfway through, I'm going to pick us up with a random question about nature, just to make sure we're still love on the it. positive. Mm, love it. <laughs> but let's let's go into this then, because you've gone into climate activism because this is rightfully something that's grown hugely and quickly over the last five years, like I said, rightfully so. So how and why did you get into the activism arena? Yeah, I mean... You know, it's never been aside from the things that I've done. And I think Mm. that the word activist in and of itself has a lot of connotations. But if we really look at it simplistically, it's about enacting social political change. And you'll find that most people are actually activists who talk about anything Mm. to do with the biodiversity crisis or climate change or even people who think they're working jobs, which are not in tandem with like climate activism there is action involved in every single thing that you do. And so for me, I feel like it's been something I've been a part of for a very long time, but really only dedicated the last like five or six years to it full time, in part because of the urgency. And also because I think that it took me a longer time than most people to really figure out what my role was in this movement. 
And, you know, with passing time as well, I become even more specialized, I think, in the different forms of advocacy that I'm focusing on. And so Mm. you'll probably know with the climate crisis being a very heavy topic in and of itself, I speak a lot about mental health and climate change. And that's kind of been the area that I've specialized in over the past two years. I feel like growing up in Hong Kong as well really helped. And far from being just a cosmopolitan city, it's actually really, really diverse and green and lush and only 25% of the land is developed. So by virtue of statistics, I grew up in the countryside and I spent so much time by the sea. I grew up in a fishing town um, and it was not lost for me to witness environmental degradation as well as beauty. Um, One of the best highlights from my childhood was seeing the local Chinese white dolphin, which is actually bright, bubblegum oh, wow. pink um, yeah, because yeah. Their, their, their skin is white, but because the blood vessels are so close to the surface of their skin, they look pink. And yeah, oh, and incredible. so you see these dark, murky waters and just these like little, you know, slithers of pink kind of <laughs> gliding through the water. So very, very That's big amazing. appreciation for wildlife and the natural world through growing up in Hong Kong. And you can't help but notice all the terrible things that are happening to them. So it just, mm. yeah, it's kind of come together in, in a way that feels very natural. And so, yeah, that's that's really nice, like an organic mm. way that it, you just felt that natural draw going, this is, I don't I don't want to use the word duty. Well, mm. I will use the word duty, actually. Do you, did you feel like it was that draw to, to do it? Definitely, and I think that also Hong Kong as a city is, a, is quite an interesting one because it has a very complicated socio-political history, and I think that because yeah. there are political limitations to what you can speak about because of how strict it is moving to the UK for me felt like okay yes we have our own political limitations here but if I talk about environmental activism or anything political of that nature I'm not a hundred percent guaranteed to get thrown into jail I mean I mean, they're they're still, yeah, right, with the police (laughs) borders and centres and crime bill. Yeah, I mean, it's changed, but I will say the odds are still Mm. better here than they are in Hong Kong. So for me, I'm kind of like, maybe there is this duty, maybe there is this, okay, well, the liberties that I have here in the UK, I would never have in Hong Kong. So I've got to shout as loud Mm. as I can. Uh, before somebody decides that that's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> but so is there activism like, as, as we see here, because I've, I've never mm. been to Hong Kong. Um, I, I've been privileged enough to be able to travel around it a bit, but I've, I've never mm. found myself in Hong Kong. Are you, do you have that same level of activism? Not at all. In Hong Kong, or is it just not I mean, possible? there is socio-political activism, which does not necessarily touch strictly on the environment. But I also, you know through doing climate justice campaigning, you begin to realise that it's all very interconnected. And so whatever political freedoms people are fighting for in Hong Kong, that inevitably has an effect on whether or not they can take action for the environment or for the climate. Mm. But if we're going to talk about them in silos, it's deprioritised because it's not the first existential threat. It's ironic because it is a huge threat. And it's one, right, and it's one that is time-sensitive. But when people think about threats, and I, I think a lot of this came from the research that I was doing when I was writing as well, people think about threats as what's happening tomorrow, yeah, you know, what's yeah. literally happening tomorrow, and is that going to affect my livelihood? So I feel as though it makes sense that 
it's not the top priority. And all the research that has come out has mm. shown that China and places like Hong Kong, with the least amount of political freedom, are places where people are less able to take climate action and are less likely to take action in the conventional sense to combat yeah. things like climate change anxiety. So, yeah, it's all part of the same puzzle. And I often make a comment about how political freedom is essential to campaigning for the climate. Absolutely, Sorry. yeah. And it's not until mm. you, to be honest, until you talk about those those two examples as a difference, I don't think many... I mean, I'm talking socially here. We wouldn't really mm. consider that because I've not experienced that kind of political restraint that I don't that I, yeah. that I don't have here. So I, I think it's it's something that we mm. can very easily overlook. <laughs> and and not I think, think it's it, it's important as well because when you see what the Tory government's doing to our own rights as activists, as mm. protesters, people, as campaigners, we go, okay, well, we know how bad it's ended up for other people. Yeah. But- we don't want to go down that path. And I think the UK has always been a place where uh, people have really pushed back p- for political freedom. And, and that hasn't come without a cost. You know, people have worked tirelessly. And something that I always try to remind people is that change, whatever it is, isn't passive. It's not something that we can just, once it's done, it's done. Things mm. will never change. It's a constant fight to keep your political freedoms it's a constant fight to push for environmental change because we can't just retire on laurels that have already been pushed into the public conscience like these things are very very tasky and they're very hard to maintain and people are pushing back (laughs) so yeah I feel I feel really blessed as well to be around people who who appreciate the political freedom they have here yeah absolutely it's almost essential for your work to Mm. to have that yeah Um, yeah this is I, I guess I want to ask you this as well because because of well, any activism really, but let's mm. let's look at the climate activism work or world that you're in. Do you see that as not see that? Sorry, but with it being work, do you enjoy like do you enjoy it? I guess is what I'm saying because it's you're mm. having to deal or put yourself in that uh, kind of black cloud quite a lot. Yeah. I guess. So, do you enjoy it or do you enjoy parts of it? Or again, it's is it more of that duty? I like this question because it's evolved a lot and I don't think it's mm. been a static sort of experience for me. I think yeah. that when I first started climate campaigning, there was a lot of urgency and I think that was part of what motivated me to get into this space. And I think with the urgency, you go, this isn't a choice. This is a must. Like, we have to do this. There's no choice. There's no joy in this. I have no stake in this. But the reality is that I'm doing this because everyone's lives depend on it. And then after having been in this movement now for such a large part of my young adult life, you realise that sustainability, besides talking about trying to make our day-to-day lives more sustainable in what we consume and what we do with our lives, I realise it's a mindset as much as it is, you know, those aspects of it. And everyone that I know in this space has experienced profound burnout. And I've gotten so close to points where I tap out completely or have to take prolonged breaks for such a long time that I'm like is this really what sustainability is is this really the world that I want to create is this something that I think will actually benefit everyone and and the thing is I I don't think it is I think being mentally unwell in a space like this isn't exactly very tantalizing no, it's not, it's not. and no. you know and I think there are elements of privilege that we have to dissect and go okay how much of this is a choice for other people who live on the front lines and all of these different things but 
I don't think sacrifice and joy should be something that we do. We need to make this a world that we want to create for the future as well. And I, I don't want to send a message out there to other young people who come across my work that they have to forfeit their youth and forfeit their happiness in order to make a difference because that's not the world that I want to create. And so now I'm definitely more in a place of um, enjoyment in the work that I do. I try Mm. and catalyze on the moments of joy that I have. They aren't without their difficulties, but I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. So that's really lovely to hear as well, because like mm. some, uh, there's so many jobs out there that are just hard because they're hard yeah, and, and they're, they're, they're going to be, hard. yeah, they're just objectively hard. And uh, yes. I would put this kind of one in that, in that circle because mm. it, it, you are mentally, I guess, stretching yourself. Yeah. You're stretching yourself every time. Right. But occasionally we know when we try and stretch, we also go into our stress zone and we also go into our mm. struggle zone. And I think that's what I class as a difficult job. And all, all jobs have elements of that. But right. I think the, the difficult, I, I'd imagine, obviously I, I've, I've not done it as intensely as you have, but mm. the difficult here, difficulty thing with somewhere like Britain, and I don't want to stereotype, is that we're so, so our culture almost is part of going, I'm, oh, that's fine. That will be all right. Mm. Don't worry about it. I don't mind yeah. having to work 40 yeah. hours a week for 25 yeah. years and not spending anything just to be able to buy a house in a suburban area I don't yeah. want to live in. Like we we just put up with it. And yeah. like you said, when you're trying to get that across going, we don't have to do that. That must be yeah. even more of a battle in a culture where it is just so ingrained in us. It's, it is really normalised and I think that also comes with the like decorum that Britishness employs where they're just, you know, let's agree to disagree, yeah. let's not rock the boat. <laughs> you, know, it's su- <laughs> you know, it's such a huge part of the culture, but equally so I find that when you have something leaning that far that way, you have people who are like pushing back. Um, and I found the people who push back and I found the people who mediate between both because they recognize that we have to kind of speak to everyone i i i think it's you know i think it is tough i i'm not gonna lie it has been really difficult at times and there is a lot of heaviness that comes with doing this kind of work but something else that i think is really important to mention is that negative emotions stereotypically negative emotions are actually very adaptive and they speak to the level with which you care about something as well. So for instance, it's not lost on many of us to be angry a lot of the time with what the government's doing, with what's happening to the planet. You know, there's always someone who's responsible for this, there's systems that are responsible for this. But if we reframe it as like, okay, I'm angry about something, but where does that anger come from? And at the end of the day, you realise, oh, this anger comes from a deep place of care and love Uh, and joy that you get from certain things. So for me, I try and like remind myself every so often that this is rooted in a fundamental aspect of my humanity and care for other life forms. And that brings me a little bit of solace knowing that it's not just anger, anger, anger all the time. Yeah, that's that's mm -hmm. nice. That's that's, that's a lot of self-control, Tori. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you caught me on a really peaceful day. Just next time you catch me out in the streets, you'll be like, oh my like, uh, god. Sorry, I thought you said anger yeah. comes from a place of passion. Yeah. 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 I think also being an activist comes with many different sides. And yes, forms of course. That, yeah, of course, yeah. mate. <laughs> yeah. Do you find, like, or have you found that as uh, legislation changes or environmental mm. situations worsen, does that affect climate activism in the way we do things or does it change tactics or how do you think 
it should affect, I guess. It's so interesting because I feel like we're in a really, I don't know if exciting is the word, word but yeah. particularly sensitive time mm. um, of activism. You know, we kind of mentioned what the Tory government was doing with sort of, sort of the rights of, of protesters, but also recently one of the biggest uh, climate groups here in the UK announced that they were quitting their original tactics. So I'm talking mm. about Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, yeah. And I've organised with XR in the past, and I'm not formally part of them now, but their tactics really revolved around civil disobedience, so blocking roads and mm. causing disruption as a means to get the attention of the government. And the thing is, they've gotten the attention of the government, not often by the sort of right... That's difficult to say, but the government's response has been poor to that and has often actually made them crack down on protesters even harder. So on the one hand, you're like... This shouldn't be the fault of the activists, but then also given the Tory government and the way that they act, like we have to change tactics because it's just not working. So for me, I'm like, oh, okay, that's a clear example of how an organising group is responding to what the outcomes of their previous actions have been and they're adapting accordingly, which I think is a positive step. At the same time, I think there is so much of that which is built into activist culture where people see civil disobedience as like a huge part of it. And without it, we wouldn't have the same effects of getting people's attention because it does. But is all attention good attention? That's the that's the thing that people want to to dissect. And, you know, I would also argue that there's a lot of discourse that has come out over the last few months in particular in response to Just Stop Oil and their infamous Van Gogh sunflower tomato soup action. And you can see that the world has been really divided on it. On the one hand, you have people saying, this is amazing because it's completely ridiculous. It's gotten the media's attention. You're talking about it. It illustrates how people care more about a painting than they do the natural world. And then you have people going, this is absolutely stupid. You're just making climate activists seem like fools. Nobody's going to join the movement. How dare you destroy a piece of art like this? This isn't the right way. And, you know, I've uh, kind of come to listen to both sides and really try and understand why people are feeling the way that they do about it. And one piece of research that came out was something that I read about something called a radical flank. Mm. And, you know, by virtue of radical movements, JSO isn't actually that radical if we look historically at radical <laughs> movements. There are people who literally burn things to the ground and like kill yeah. one another. That is that's like, radical. <laughs> <laughs> that that well, see, this is the thing. Even the word radical in and of itself has become synonymous for angry and disruptive, but actually the word radical just means to tackle something at the root. So arguably ah. this word radical is like has it been co-opted for anger? Has it been portrayed that way? Right, anyway, interesting. Go, yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, does this radical action actually work? Mm -hmm. And do we consider groups like JSO to be radical? And this radical flank that has been spoken about is basically this concept that if you do things which are more radical mm. compared relative to the rest of society, like JSO is kind of on the more radical side of yeah. large organising groups in the UK, you will inevitably garner more support for the movement because the likelihood of be of someone becoming an activist in the climate movement is very low anyway. Mm. That publicity only pushes the cause further because the odds are so low that anyone would become an activist that if you start garnering press around something like this, there were there are bound to be people who look at it and go, I'll oh join. yeah, 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 yeah I'm, I'm going to join. And when you look at the 50-50 split, 
if we assume that the 50% of people who said, that's great, go you, and then another subset of them are going to go, yeah, I want to be part of that, then at the end of the day, they're only recruiting more people to the movement. Right. So probably, and I, I don't know if the research has come out as of yet, and it'd be really interesting for JSO to report on these numbers, I assume the movement's just gotten bigger since that incident. And that's good for them because mm. they need more public support um, and more civil power yeah so it's definitely something i've seen more and more of like you know since that one van gogh painting one since that yeah i've just seen more and more globally as well i'm not even just talking Mm. you know around the world like there's so many videos that aren't even english speaking and they're they're doing this it's gone global you know, the, the, my favourite one, and I'm just saying this from the perspective of, of a media consumer, not as in, with my activist hat on, yeah. is the guy who like glues his bald head to the girl with what? the pearl earring in, in the Netherlands. And I'm like, that. this is so funny. Like, this is so funny. <laughs> it's what? just so funny. I'm going to ask something that is completely irrelevant in all of this, Tori, mm. but I'm going to say, and purely because you just admired that example what is there a reason a specific reason why tomato soup is it a color to match is that just a thing or is that just like i don't know i feel like it's a color and it's just so outrageous as well i would have got a chunkier soup yeah like minestrone or something minestrone you know what would be so funny (laughs) like cream of cream of mushroom soup would have been hilarious that would have could you imagine yeah or fish but i think it's the color contrast (laughs) That's because what I it's think. like it's not transparent or translucent. It's like kind of in between. Yeah, I think actually, you're, I do, at first, at first, I thought they didn't think about this, and then secondly, I'm like, mm. no, actually, I think they gave it more thought than I'm ever going to give. <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually on point. <laughs> I also just think tomato soup is a staple. You know, everyone like knows it, don't they? Yeah, everyone knows tomato soup, and it's so funny as well because like. Th- you know, obviously people were critical of it. And I'm not going to say they're not valid in being critical because I also think that we have to work within the constraints of how people view the world. And like, I actually think part of climate action is, mm. yes, having your own theory of change, but also trying to understand why other other people don't see the way that you do. Yeah. Because I think silos are very unhelpful sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, in reading a lot of the comments, it just made me laugh so much. <laughs> like, it was brilliant. And, and you know, some people were just like, how dare you waste food? You're not setting an example for environmentalism and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, the, these were a lot of the comments. That come, how dare you waste tomato soup? And then the other comments that kind of came up were, how dare you, you you know, how how dare you not appreciate Van Gogh? He'd be turning in his grave. And a lot of people don't realise, but Van Gogh was a madman, like in the best <laughs> possible he way. Was. He was he was, <laughs> a, a creative. He was, he was certifiably insane. And I can say this as someone who identifies kind of as a bit of a mad person myself. <laughs> he also thought a lot about these kinds of things, not specifically climate, probably wasn't, you know, at the top of his agenda. No, no, then. no. But I always find that people trying to project how a certain artist would feel about their work being thrown out with soup. It's just quite funny because we don't know. We really don't know. He could have, for all we know, he could have been like, yeah, it's a piece of <laughs> I don't like this artwork. Because he was a very self-deprecating person as well. I think it'd be more at the fact that people have to stand so far away to view it. Mm. I, be, I mm. think he'd be like, why the f- have you lined them up all back there? Let them towards the painting. Yeah, like, it's what? very interesting. I mean, if I'm going to talk about artists that are inherently political and 
<laughs> talk a lot about social commentary. Like, for instance, Frida Kahlo is someone who has been mm. commodified beyond imaginable. And she even has this own Frida Kahlo museum where you can go and see her artwork. And, and that's when people say, no, 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 Frida Kahlo would be turning in her grave if she saw how commodified she'd become. So <laughs> we, we'll never know. We'll never, we know. Will never it's, know. It's so but... nice to ponder it <laughs> over it a cup of tea and a biscuit, but that's it all is. we're going to get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Um, I want to talk about something that you you really championed, as you said at the beginning, with climate justice, and that's the effect it has on mm. our mental health. Um, and a lot of people, I said to you in our in our email conversations, a lot of people have asked yeah. into the world to kind of talk about this, and I think that kind of screams how much it is having an impact on people's Definitely. mental health, including myself. I put myself there as well. Um, mm. And eco anxiety mm. is now not a new term. How does this affect society, and what impacts have we already seen? with things like eco-anxiety? Yeah, I mean, there's so much research coming out because, as you mentioned, the, the sort of novel aspect of its emergence mm. does speak a lot to the fact that people don't know very much about it intellectually and academically. And there's a lot of research that's coming out that says it's something that happens all across society, all around the world. And there are certain disparities to how people can respond to it. Like I mentioned before, uh, with China not having many political freedoms, and there was a research paper that came out which said the country most likely to be able to act on their eco-anxiety and take action was mm. somewhere like Finland. China was the least likely. Right. So we're seeing disparities in the way that people respond to it. Because at the end of the day, what researchers are suggesting is that something like eco-anxiety at its most fundamental and innocuous level, is an indication that we are human mm -hmm. and that we are re reacting very naturally to what are ultimately very unnatural and irrational circumstances such as climate change. Yeah. So it is a sign that you are functioning, basically, right. as a human. And that in and of itself can be a very adaptive thing. And if you choose to harness it as like a wake-up call, as an adaptive thing, then it can be a force for good. Yeah. My discourse that I kind of go through with the book, because I, I talk a lot about climate justice, and, mm. and for those who don't know, climate justice understands how different intersecting oppressions kind of come together to make the climate crisis, but also that climate crisis has disproportionate impacts on communities who have least contributed to its emergence. Mm. And so with something like eco-anxiety, I really went with like a magnifying glass <laughs> on it, and, and that's what the book is, right? That's cool. Part of it, is actually trying to make sense of, okay, is eco-anxiety an experience that speaks for everyone? Yep. And the answer is no, which is strange because you would think climate crisis, ah, oh, everyone reacts to it in a negative way. And it's not that people don't react to the climate crisis with feelings of grief and pain. Mm. It's just that the narratives that have been created about mental health and climate change have largely been focused on the global north. So people like myself in yeah. the UK, when you have that specific definition of eco-anxiety, it doesn't necessarily translate to those who live in countries where climate change may not be the first existential threat, mm. but the existential threats that they do experience 
are contributing to climate injustice. So yeah. I'll give you an example. My friend um, Laura Munoz from Colombia, she's like, I, eco-anxiety doesn't really speak for me. Mm. It's not that I'm not afraid of like these things. It's just, I'll be honest, Colombia is the most dangerous place to be an environmental defender. Mm. It's a place where she has a real risk as a young climate activist being murdered jesus and for her she's like i'm really afraid of the militia and the police and that is my first existential threat Mm. i don't feel like i have the capacity to think about the scientific implications of what a climate crisis means i'm really trying to like make sure that my community survives yeah and when you frame it like that you're like okay environmental defenders being killed that's not aside from the climate crisis like that's part of the injustice Mm. you know there are lots of indigenous communities in Colombia who protect their biodiversity in, you know, Amazonian regions and places like the Sierra Nevada who have a huge role to play in biodiversity stewarding. They're being killed by the police. It's a climate justice issue. But eco-anxiety, she's like, well, the way that it's portrayed here in the West is mainly about speculative projections yeah, of what's yeah. going to happen in the future. Whereas for us, a lot of it is about what has happened to our communities in the past, what's happening now, and also socio-political implications of climate injustice. So it's not really a term that encapsulates all the nuances of it by virtue of it being something that was created in the West, where climate change is impacting us, but not to the same extent as those on the front lines Mm. who haven't fed into how we define this term. So that's a really big tenet of like, what I try to unpack in the book and like try to actually make sense of what it is that make, is making people feel universally unwell, mm. as opposed to we have one blanket term and we're going to just apply it to everyone. Yeah. One thing that has really been a huge labor of love, and I think this also ties in very nicely to the theme of the podcast, is I really dive into mental health kind of more holistically, less as a sort of category of mental health, but yeah. one as a sort of like, somatic, mental, like spiritual, physical, you know, Mm. environmental connection to the world, understanding that we're all part of this ecosystem, right? The thing that has come up the most for me is that you see time and time again in research, the profound effects of separating humans from nature. Mm. And that is not an accident. You know, our scientific sort of um, system that we use is indicative of that. And if you look at, say, for instance, the way in which we classify taxonomy, like with through Linnaean systems, Homo sapiens, yeah. like there's a binary there. And that is not a binary that is just purely symbolic. It's one that has been instigated mm. for a very long time. And that dualism that I'm speaking about is where a long time ago, someone decided humans are separate from nature. Humans are above nature. And that hierarchy has persisted so much that it's even informed our socioeconomic system where people go, we can commodify nature because it's not really living. It's not really human. It's not, you know, it's not important. And when you see that division, you think, okay, it's no wonder we're mentally unwell. We're teach, you know, we are teaching people that they are not part of nature. Humans are entirely part of nature. And our well-being is so intrinsically linked to it that I'm like, is it eco-anxiety or is it this knowledge system, this economic system, has, which has basically taught people, oh, it's just a nice added extra to be able to go outside. You know, it's not fundamentally mm. part of your wellness. And there's a saying in the climate movement, and I think it's one that really speaks to this dichotomy, which is, you know, a lot of climate 
activists say we are nature protecting itself. We are not defending nature. We are nature yeah, defending like itself. That. And and I think that's so true because when we start envisioning a world where we are part of nature, so many of these illnesses that have been categorically made for mental health illness and all of these things, you might even question, would would they exist as they do now? Mm. You know, would would they exist if we hadn't systematically tried to remove ourselves from that which we are? So I think there's a caveat that really needs to be explored with with how much mental health and and even the category of nature in and of itself is a Western construct. Because if you look at indigenous cultures and those who are most connected to the land, this concept of nature it sounds really weird. Like, yeah. you know, some of my friends who live in Colombia who are indigenous are just like, well, like we have so many words to describe types of water or like a river, mm. you know, and we have like, Two words. Water. <laughs> Water, right? And like an indigenous Sami leader from Scandinavia was saying, oh, we have so many different words to describe like the different reindeer antler shapes. I and I think that. that's a, the language is a testament to like, they notice these things. This is part of their culture. It, like this category of like, oh, that's nature. This is us. Doesn't exist. No, like we no. are embedded in this system. Um, and And so for me, like, you know, eco-anxiety maybe it's just the linguistics of it but it, i don't feel like it encapsulates as a word just how profound this mental suffering is but that's like a really deep dive if you're really like going with a, it's not even a magnifying glass it's a microscope yeah you've guided um, you've shrunk yourself like honey you shrunk the kids and gone in like. i really have i really have but you know i really want to like stress another thing there's a really big connection between the feeling or the the sort of emergence of anxiety and fascism, which sounds mm. very like, what? But I'll explain, you know, like a lot of people who have very, very um, sort of anxious predispositions about the world are more likely, not always, more likely to become infatuated with a sort of fascist predisposition uh, or politic mm. that means that they are going to be kind of, how should we say, limiting other people. And what I mean by that is I'm afraid of something like eco-anxiety being co-opted by the far right as a means to push through policies that are climate unjust. And one example of that would be, you know, with having anxiety, eco-anxiety, people might be like, oh God, there aren't going to be many resources. Everyone's doomed. The world is going to collapse it's every man for themselves let's close all the borders these climate refugees who are coming into the country we're not going to help them and that for me is the antithesis of everything that climate justice stands for yeah and you notice that eco-anxiety and and there's a concept for it it's called the greening of hate it's where people use climate change to disguise um or to be kind of like euphemistic ways of hiding fascist policies mm. and so one of them would be population control like you see a lot of people talking about <laughs> population control in the global south oh we got to stop these people breeding because that's causing climate change and it's like well the african continent only contributes two to three yeah. percent <laughs> emissions so let's not forget that but it becomes this really supposedly innocuous way to hide fascist politics because you go oh it's natural we need to do something to stop nature you know completely collapsing in on itself mm. and and that's 
that's kind of the danger, I think, with this this anxiousness. And, and we need to be able to harness it for good. We need to be able to reach to people who are anxious about the climate crisis and go, no, there is another way. Yeah, and, and we yeah. don't have to do this. We, ha- we can work together to, to stop this. We can do something better, basically. Um, but then some people are just complicated. It's never going to be able to. <laughs> but yeah. that's it. I know you said it there. We can, <laughs> we can do mm. something about this. But that's, yeah, I think can. that's such a powerful sentence in this whole thing is um, uh, among the shouting and the protesting and the discussions, uh, whether it on TV, in person, in the yeah. pub, whatever, we can stop all of that at the same time, look at each other and go, lads, we can do something about this. We totally can. We so and, can. And the thing is, even, and I hate to say this, but even if we're not reaching 1.5 degrees of warming, yeah. and I, I'd never want to utter that, like, sort of... I know what you a, mean, mate. Given, I know what you mean. <laughs> but, like, even if, if, because we've got, like, seven, <laughs> six years or however long now, God, um, <laughs> even if every degree counts, you know, like, every minute fraction mm-hmm. that counts, and... I think it would be futile for us to assume that we can't have an influence on the minute I know. aspects of this um, because we can, we truly can. And I'm seeing it happen and I'm seeing it happen in the UK and I'm seeing it happen all across the world with, you know, people rising up. And yes, degrees are still rising, carbon emissions are still rising, but we are really like truly on the cusp of something big here. And I feel like it's going to have to give, like it has to change yeah. There is no other option. It has to change. So, and I've seen I've seen movements on the ground resisting this, and I have a lot of hope. I hate to use that word, but hope. No, I, I agree. <laughs> I I, th- I think if the Kardashians can influence people to give them a show for a very long time, we can influence mm. change in the world as well. Come on, like if one yeah. family can do all that, think about what we could all do for the climate. I mean, I know that's simplifying a lot. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm just throwing this in there, but I I don't know if you kind of saw the the January Vogue cover that just came out. I did, yes. I saw it on your Instagram, actually. And that's the thing. Mm. That is a huge, huge thing. And And the thing is, like, for me, that's not what... I'm not saying that's not what it means for me to be a climate activist, because that's not... It's it's more complicated than that. that, But it's, it's more complicated than that. But... Instead of it being, this is what, you know, this is what came out. It's Vogue. It's it's not about that. It's like, this is a huge cultural moment. Yeah, and to yeah. show that people like Vogue, people in Vogue are going, okay, this is an issue. Yeah, you know, exactly. like, I never thought I'd see the day. And I know it's behind and I know that we need more of it. And I know that it shouldn't rely on big media platforms to validate. But that's the system we're in, right? That is the system right. we're in. We we you got to use the system yeah, to benefit. We have, it. We have. You can't scrap it. Like it ain't going anywhere. So it's like use your. <laughs> this phrase is going to sound weird, and I don't want to. Mm. I'll just say it. Like use your enemies to get get what you need. Like right, we're all in this for a mm. reason. We need to speak to the masses. Vogue has, for, as an example, has the masses. Do it. Like yeah. absolutely do it. Mm-mm. That's my it's thoughts really... on that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I agree with you in so many ways, and I feel like sometimes I really think to myself, in a sort of you know, uh, I would say every so often, it's probably every day. Do we really have time to like mm, be picky I with know. who we work with? 100%. Like, I I I feel like we need everyone, 
And we don't have to agree with everybody politically. I know I certainly don't agree with a lot of people politically. Mm. But one thing I do agree with is that this is going to affect us all Mm. and that I would rather everybody do something than nothing at all. And so I'm just hoping these things keep happening and it just is like a really gratuitous snowball that kind of goes all the way way and everyone's sucked up into this movement (laughs) and we all do something and we save the planet and then we can all go And then close the book and we can go and enjoy a beach. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Do you mind me asking, you don't have to answer this question because I feel Mm. like sometimes it's fun to open up, sometimes it's not, but do you mind me asking, when do you feel the weight of it the most with doing what Mm. you do? This is going to be kind of maybe surprise, maybe not surprise. It can go either way. (laughs) During podcasts. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Maybe you can relate to this or perhaps some other listeners can as well. It actually, actually feels, you know, all the <laughs> that happens in the world and yeah. all the things that we hear about, definitely horrific, awful, awful, awful to deal with. But when I feel the worst is actually when I don't feel like I'm good enough in the movements that I'm in. Wow, that's heavy. Okay. And it's, it's, when, it's when there's infighting in our own spaces yeah. because that to me is like, it's not just the emotional outcome of of having, you know, tension. Mm. It's also an indication to me that these are the people who position themselves mm. as people who want to spearhead this change, who care about the world, who are positioning themselves in a way where they're like, yes, we will be the change, but they're fighting with each other. And that to me is like, what are we doing? You know, like if we are in this position where we have positioned ourselves to push for change and we're collapsing in on ourselves what what does that mean for the rest of the movement like what does that mean for what we yes. try to achieve and i feel like it is kind of inevitable sometimes not always but sometimes because people carry a lot of traumas yeah, and have a lot of you know, expectations people people, they're angry yeah. right they're angry and you know i've been that person to have a messy and like oh i feel this way about it and i don't know where to put these feelings and and that for me is when it's heaviest because i'm like we should be here for each other. We should all be supporting each other. Like, this is a difficult thing to do. Like, let's save ourselves yeah, the, yeah. the energy. Let's not fight with each other. Mm. Like, we're not each other's enemies, realistically. <laughs> we're not. We're all trying to work towards the same thing. And I don't think I explicitly have any enemies. I think that word in yeah, and of itself yeah. can be very loaded. But if there's something that I want to fight, it's the people who are actively, like, actively destroying this planet willingly knowing that they're making profit from doing it people who are actively Mm. denying the climate science people who are like nah we're just gonna kill these people because we want to take their land and drill it for oil like those to me are the people i want to fight yeah you know um in so many ways uh, right (laughs) little high kick there uppercut papow stop it you're being really (laughs) mean guys yeah yeah so for me i'm just like yeah that's when it's not good vibes and I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can imagine. And I, do you know what? You said I might be able to relate to that. I, I do in some levels and, and throughout mm. many jobs I've had as well from a creative yeah. aspect. I do understand what you mean there a lot. Um, I'm going to lift it up a bit before we get too heavy. Right, come on. We're talking about mental I'm going to keep it on topic of mental health. What's mm, the one mm. food that gets you by when you're feeling Oh, I love this one because I'm a foodie. <laughs> I am a foodie. Um... I, 
and love mushrooms. I really do. I know. I like. I'm not talking about any specific sort of type, but just I'm. I'm going to tell you what I ate today. I okay. ate oyster mushrooms, and I love them. I love just, oyster what mushrooms. I just had them with bread. Like, just bread just in a bat. It's just in a, good. In a bat. What? Oh, with some like you with some seasoning. Yeah, some, yeah. What do you yeah, season them? Not with? just like just salt and pepper. They're so good. They're oh, so to be fair, good. I've not had oyster mushrooms in. I love them, and you can also, yeah. for anyone who wants, who's a budding mycologist, super easy. You can go online and you can buy like oyster mushroom growing kits, and all you do is you get a bucket, you soak the little bag mm. in the water, and then you pop them on your counter, spritz them every day, and then you just have like a supply oyster mushrooms oh, growing. Yeah, mate. Yeah, and that. you can get so many. So many cuts from it. So just just so. mushroom. Like that is way more simplistic than I thought you were going to say. I just, I know, I know. Most people, which is like, fine. I love, I love, I love chocolate cake. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> really I'm not like a jam oh, roll. That's the thing. That's the thing. I should disclose. I love food. Mm. I love food, but I don't have a sweet tooth. And I'm just like, oh, no. Do you know no, what? I'm never more had. savory though. I'm because if yeah, you would ask right, savory. my answer would be two things. I've mm. got my thing, and then I've got my mm. good meal, but still mm. piece of my thing is just sausage rolls. Like I could eat sausage yeah. rolls, like <laughs> like I'm great. putting Greg's at the top. Yeah, of the do you yeah. know what I mean? Like I just yeah. Tell you what, okay, Go so on. I do eat the vegan sausage rolls at Greg's, mm. but the best, if anyone's like a vegan sausage roll connoisseur, yeah, the best <laughs> ones that I had um, oh, are actually. Oh God, it, I think it's. They're in train stations, okay? It's like a pasty shop. It's not Wenzel's. No, it's not. <laughs> Is it the Cornish pasties? I don't think it's the Cornish pasties. They have one in Bristol train station and they also have one in London Paddington. They do the best vegan sausage rolls and they're like three quid, right? And no, I think you are talking about the Cornish pasty thing. The one in Maybe. Paddington. Yeah. I've yeah. had one from there. Yeah. That for me was like the best one that I've ever had. Oh, mate. And I'm I know going, it's pricier. I, I'm not far from I that. Know. I just go? <laughs> It's not pricey. I mean, it is pricier than Greg's, but it's like so good. It's worth Tori, it. when are you next so, in London? Let's do a sausage roll tour. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm down. I'm down. Sign me up. Like, My other genuinely. thing, so it would either be uh, sausage rolls or I f***ing love ramen. Like mm, I could eat ramen. Mm. I'd have that seven days a week and not even go off of it. So that's my I have a up. confession to make as well. What? You don't like ramen? I loved ramen oh, until happened? I got COVID. What? Because I was in Japan when I got COVID and I was eating nothing but ramen and I got so sick That's with COVID worst when I was... effect yeah, from COVID was, I've ever heard. Mm -hmm, yeah, and because, you know, when you get sick yeah. and it doesn't have to have been triggered by a particular food, you just affiliate it with feeling sick. Oh, That's no. what ramen does now. Do you yeah. we can train you back in? I think I'm going to have to because genuinely it's one to, of my favourite things. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's so good. It's, it's so good. Really <laughs> right, cool. There we go. So we've got mushrooms, mm. sausage rolls, and well, we, let's not talk about ramen. I don't want to be throwing up. <laughs> um, right, Tori, I'm not going to suggest you've got all the answers to everything because mm. no one can, but can you tell us what you believe is good for people to focus on who are listening and myself who suffer mm. from eco-anxiety or whose mental health has taken a bit of a hit due to current social changes? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, this again is not prescriptive and it's also something that varies according to the person mm -hmm. in question. But, and I'm going to throw this around as this sort of vague term, 
Um, mm. I actually think community is very important. Yes. Um, and I think that, you know, it's not just like, oh, find people who are radical and like yeah, tearing yeah. shit up. It's also like spending time with your mates. Mm. And I think sometimes we embellish the term community so much that it seems kind of inaccessible to people. But I, I literally try and remind people like community can literally be your mates and yeah. like hanging out with friends mm-hmm. and like just being with people who care about you. Um, and, the, and you know, when we think about it practically in terms of climate as well, they can be people that you make change with and, you know, organize with and whatever. But also in times of crisis, I'm probably going to be more reliant on the people who are near me. Yeah. Like more than ever. Yeah. On every and I level. feel like, yeah. And they're really in essential for our sanity. And as we saw with the pandemic, social isolation is not good for your mental health Mm. um so for me yeah community is really important and that goes so far as like friendships organizing people just surrounding yourself with people who get it Mm. um and who you can talk to about this kind of stuff because yeah everyone needs somebody to just kind of hold them not only hold them accountable but hold them in their darkest times and i feel like you know life's not easy like objectively mm. it's not not very easy at the moment so i really like that answer. find your peeps yeah, yeah i really like people. that and i think do you know what like living in london like i've said it on the mm. show before a lot of people like just people in conversation will say to me like oh there's no really no real community in london though is there and i'm like oh you have no idea like there's I, so, much. so much like mm. london is built on community like i it really is even just where i am now like i know all my neighbors like in, yeah. and just the fellow the other dog walkers that I work with around here we all know each other yeah. and it's just you you just have that I think now I'm in my 30s as well like I've really mm, grabbed mm. onto that and like I've got so old so quick but I'm like <laughs> relatable <laughs> yeah do you know what I mean like I'm proper like I just love being in the pub with the the pals that you can just be like pub question yeah. mark in and just having that circle yeah. around you it's support. so good yeah it's, it's, it's so, so good so needed so needed and like that outing that i went on where i was in the rain and then went to the pub actually went with pete um oh yeah <laughs> good old pete good cooper old everyone pete, pete cooper shout out pete shout i hope out you're pete. listening oh he's gonna um, love that he's gonna be yeah. messaging me yeah. going i've got a shout out on your show <laughs> yeah and um you know for me it was like even better because i just spent that time with mates yeah <laughs> so it, it, do you know what? It, it got me through like the summer because like you know a bit like I, so I professional dog walker in the summer was just mm, absolute mm, hell on oh earth. Oh my gosh! Like yeah. it was just it went on for so long and and the, I struggled a lot during that time like mentally and physically and mm. it, it, just, it was just horrible and then until another a budding naturalist uh, um, Ashley Whiffin came mm. down from Edinburgh and we just spent the weekend and I instantly just got picked up and it really yeah. just we. You know, we went to the pub. We did karaoke one night, and, and we still like went for so walks. I was, I was so much fun, and it was just one of those things. that was like, this is what I needed. I didn't have enough of this, yeah. and I started to realize yeah. that I was working so much out in the elements, mm. being reminded of it, and I was too tired to do anything else. So until I had that moment, it, it was, it was lovely. It was really, really. It's nice. honestly the best pick me up, especially when you're like isolated, and I've been there myself. Yeah. And, you know, ugh, I think everyone's been there with the pandemic, but. Yeah, just like find people who care about the same stuff as you, who like doing the same stuff. And even, and I, I think I said this in an interview recently, like people who don't do the same thing as you. Yes, like, yeah, learn from people, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And also just like for me, and, and maybe a lot of climate people listening might be like, I'm 
not sure if this is great. <laughs> but for me, I'm just like, honestly, spending time with people who aren't in the climate movement reminds me of what what is important. Mm. And that sounds kind of strange I because yeah. people are like, climate is important. And it is. It mm. really is. I love the work that I do. I love the people I work with. I love the things that we do to try and change the world. It's hard, but I love it. But spending time with people who aren't in it and who are doing different types of work, you know, their mm-hmm. work's important too. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's really It's everything important. to them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So for me, spending time with people who aren't in the climate movement is like super important. Yeah, and, I'm with uh, you on that. Yeah, yeah. And a lot, to be fair, a lot of my friends are naturalists and they're like yeah. in the wildlife world. So it's, you know, two peas in a pod. Yeah, it exactly. works really nicely. You, you, it's nice to have a mix. It's nice to have a mix. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before I go on to my last question, I really want to quickly mm. ask about your, um, I sound like such a chat show host when I talk like this. Yeah. No, I, I love so, it. I, I, like, oh, so you've got a new book coming out, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I do want to chat about it. It's called, It's Not Just Us. We've likely spoken, we actually, you said about some of the topics in this, but what can we expect from this? Is this your first book? It is my first <gasps> book. Yeah. Exciting. Exciting stuff. How have you found it? Uh, It's been a massive labour of love and (laughs) it has been like, God, you know, for anyone who's been to uni and has written like a thesis, Mm. times that experience by like a million, (laughs) you know, and I say this as someone who used to be in the academic world and I was very set on like postdoc, everything. That was my you know, before I I went into what I do, it is intense and it is emotional, but you come out the other side being like, oh, casually wrote a thousand, 70,000. It was not casual at all, but you kind of look (laughs) back on it and it feels, it almost feels a little bit kind of like trivial going, oh yeah, there you go. In one sitting, I just wrote 70, you didn't, you didn't Tori, you didn't do that. But you know what I mean? It's just like, just like that. I could just select all and delete and it would all be gone. (laughs) <laughs> oh, don't, don't joke about that. That's Jesus so Christ. I just, <laughs> Why did you, you do know, that? <laughs> I just, I'm basically just trying to illustrate that, like, it's such a big thing to have done that it's actually just a really small thing at the same time. Does that make any sense? Out it's of like, all the things we've spoken about on the show, that was the darkest. That was the darkest <laughs> yeah. moment, Matt. <laughs> but it's like, do you know what? It's, maybe I'm not explaining it very well, but it's like I know you work yeah. so hard on something. It's just a blip. And though. then it's just like pieces of paper and you're like... Yeah this is nothing this is yeah. this, this could be nothing but yeah so it was it's intense. Out this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it's out in the summer I'm very excited clearly as you can tell oh, that was the best way to introduce your book. yeah <laughs> guys it's nothing <laughs> nothing and it does go into like what we spoke about on the show today right 100 percent. yeah i i i mean so much of it and and i really love how we kind of continued on from this from the idea of community because mm. It really makes a point about this issue with mental health and thinking that it's your fault or that you're alone or, you know, that it's something that nobody else is experiencing um, and actually makes a point to be like, actually, there's a really big community of people who are struggling with their mental health. Um, And it's also not just your fault. Like, it it really looks at the systematic implications of poor mental health and the politicised sort of ways in which we may become mentally ill. Mm. Uh, and, And what I mean by that is realistically would there be so many mentally ill people if there wasn't a cost of living crisis if you know the climate crisis wasn't something we had to worry about if people were working just to make ends meet and it, it really tries to look at mental health from a systematic perspective as well yeah um and so 
it's a reminder like it's not just you like there are systems that are making us very unwell i like Uh, that yeah so it's it's like it goes from the individual aspects of like what it means to big picture stuff and then kind of ties it all together at the end by reminding people find your community find your people find the people that honestly will take care of you and who will you know love you unconditionally because we need that we really need that as humans so yeah, it's a nice. labour of love. Labour of love. I cannot wait mm. to read it. Um, the last question is the end of the world question is, mm. if you could pass on one thing or advise someone to try something to help to connect with the natural world, what would it be? Foraging. Yeah, I knew it. I knew you were going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Foraging, yeah, because, yes, 100%. You know, you get outside, you engage parts of your brain, which are not only analytical, but also yeah. like enjoyable in in so many ways and you can consume something and create meals out of it like it's a it's an ultimate act of creativity and connection to the natural world um so for me like foraging is such a huge part of that and yeah i think you know for folks who are intros to um foraging there's some really great books out there which can help you Mm. get into it and one of my personal favorites um is the forager's calendar which it's just I think like I've heard of that. It's so lovely, honestly. Like Is it? it's just it's just um it's a super simple guide to not it's not just fungi as well, um, to what you can forage in Britain throughout mm. the months and they organize it, you know, um by January, February, March, and it's done oh, in that way. Nice. So that's really nice. So you can actually just go, okay, it's January now. What can I what find? Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. If there's anyone so listening that's gonna get into that as well, you've got a Banging time coming up because wild garlic's going to be sprouting in the next yeah couple, like wild next garlic pesto oh yes mm-hmm. so go for Google where you're near as wild garlic patches and go and take a few sprigs hundred <laughs> percent I I recently found some um, beef state fungus in <clears throat> my local ancient woodland how's that and you know taste wise it's quite acidic actually um, far it? from what you might expect because it kind of has the marbled sort of red meat looking um, aspect yeah. to it but yeah it was really cool it like bleeds <laughs> it's really, That's it's weird. really intriguing. yeah and it was just growing off and off a decaying um oak tree that's yeah. so cool i like do you know what i've not i've not foraged i'm still not good at idea and fungi I, I, I need to be better before i start eating i mean that's the thing i my friend and i actually had a bit of a scare halfway through because i decided <laughs> don't think this was actually a good idea i decided to just randomly open my mushroom foraging book and found one that looked incredibly similar but that said poisonous do not eat <laughs> oh crap but then but then it was it was it, it wasn't the right time of the year and like it wasn't yeah okay. and i'm fine i'm you, still here i'm still here so. yeah i mean you're scaring me a lot with your foraging yeah. Yeah. Not, you I'm have not. to be careful so i would recommend <laughs> actually disclaimer listeners yeah disclaimer don't just go out and eat something you'll probably get sick but go but do try um <laughs> get a foraging course you know they have group foraging yeah courses. that's a good idea mm, mm, with some yeah. experts who you know they know the local spots. They know where to find certain species. Uh, they know how to prepare them. All of that jazz. So Love I'd it. recommend that. Well, Tori, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Um, I feel like we kept a heavy topic fairly light, yeah. as we always try to achieve on the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I cannot wait for your book. Um, keep fighting the good fight, mate. And it's uh, been a pleasure so talking to you. And to you. Thank you. 
Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.